Would you say, generally speaking, that as you think about defaults, would you think that they've been kind of pushed out further into the future, given all the stimulus that we've seen? Yeah, I think to steal a COVID term of of flattening the curve, I think that that absolutely has happened. The the stimulus that's come in, some of the liquidity measures that have come in from managers like ourselves into these companies certainly kicks the can down the road, if you will, and gives the issuers time to try to deal with a low to no revenue environment during COVID. But certainly that means that they're going to come out on the other side of this, probably at levels of revenue lower than what we had pre-COVID and with balance sheets that are more bloated. So defaults are still, in our view, going to happen. It's just going to happen in a more organized fashion and not all at once. That was Brian High, co-portfolio manager for Bearing Special Situation Strategy. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number three of season four of Streaming Income. We are excited to bring you a jam-packed season in the coming months, complete with in-depth conversations on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. My guests today are Stuart Matheson and Brian High, co-portfolio managers for Bearings Special Situations Strategy. The Special Situations Group at Bearings has been investing together since 2008, having completed more than 150 corporate restructurings across the U.S. and Europe during that time. The group consists of 12 dedicated investment professionals who are positioned at the intersection of the firm's global high yield private credit, and structured credit businesses, which collectively account for over $80 billion in assets under management and more than 150 investment professionals. The topic of our conversation today was distressed debt. We talked about how 2020 played out and specifically how the pandemic and government stimulus efforts helped to shape the opportunity set for distressed investors. We also discussed what's next, specifically where Stuart and Brian are seeing opportunities emerge in areas such as rescue financing and also in smaller, less trafficked transactions. Finally, we talked about the competitive environment in the space, along with where investor interest is coming from today and how all of this is getting done in what is still almost entirely a virtual environment. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Stuart Matheson and Brian High. All right, Stuart Matheson and Brian High. Very excited to have you guys back on the show. Uh, Stuart, thank you for joining from London today. Good morning, Greg. Uh, Thanks for for having us on. All right. And Brian, thank you for joining from Charlotte today. Yep. Happy to be here. Thanks, Greg. Awesome. So, uh, you know, believe it or not, it's been uh, nearly a year since uh, you both were last on this podcast. And I think to say that a lot has happened uh, during the course of that year would be the understatement of the century. Uh, given the pandemic, the economic disruption, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'd like to do is kind of start high level and start almost like looking back a little bit in terms of where we've been. And and Stuart, what I'd like to ask you is to tell me about 
what the landscape has looked like over the past year for distressed debt. Um, and maybe let's start global and then zoom in on Europe. Of course, uh, and, and I think if we, as we reflect on, on on last year, I mean, firstly, it, it was a really interesting year for the distressed market um, as companies and markets grappled with the impact of COVID, although perhaps not in the way that was originally expected. Um, if I think back to Q2 of, of 20, um, default expectations were running high, high single digit, um, mid mid double digit rates in some cases, and that and that really has failed. Uh, to materialise, um, lots of reasons that, that I'm sure everyone will be familiar with: uh, government support measures, deferral of fixed costs such as rent. Uh, I guess we all learnt about furlough and the ability to defer uh, fixed costs from from companies' balance sheets, and and plus, look, companies just just ended up getting a lot of flexibility and, and liquidity uh, onto their balance sheets. Um, so, uh, look, instead of defaults, I think we saw different types of opportunities. Um, so certainly discounted secondary in the kind of June and September quarters, uh, lots of uh, lots of opportunities in that space. Some of that has eroded now uh, with, with the markets tightening. I think it still exists on a single name basis. Um, but also rescue financing and, and ways of putting new money into situations. I think another trend as well, just to be, uh, just to reflect on is, is the emergence of of, of larger platforms, managers who um, you know, people may have expected to sell, but who are generally core participants in the market, ha- turning up with more flexible capital, uh, and, and I think you know being able to design solutions uh, from those platforms has also been a, another trend that perhaps people wouldn't have seen at the start of twenty uh, twenty. Brian, I guess I've heard you guys talk a little bit of, before about this kind of concept of flattening the mm-hmm. default curve. Would you say, generally speaking, that as you think about defaults, would you think that they've been kind of pushed out further into the future, given all the stimulus that we've seen? Yeah, I think to steal a COVID term of, of flattening the curve, I think that that absolutely has happened. Um, the, the stimulus that's come in, some of the liquidity measures that have come in from managers like ourselves into these companies, uh, certainly you know kicks the can down the road, if you will, and gives the issuers time to try to deal with you know, a, a low to no revenue environment uh, during COVID. But, you know, certainly that means that they're going to come out on the other side of this, probably at levels of revenue lower than what we had pre-COVID and with balance sheets that are more bloated. So defaults are still, in our view, going to happen. It's just going to happen in a more organized fashion and not all at once as in previous cycles. We just saw a, a big spike in, in defaults over a short period of time. And now we believe it's going to play out over a two to three year period as these companies um, you know, start to come out of COVID and have liquidity issues on the other side and, and whether or not the capital markets are open to refinance very bloated balance sheets at this point. Um, it'll, it'll sort of be a game of, of whether or not they can get back to pre-COVID levels fast enough to grow into those capital structures. And I don't think everyone is going to be able to, to accomplish that. A lot of the capital and liquidity that's gone into businesses has really just gone into to plug losses. Um, it, it's not productive capital. It hasn't gone into to, to reinvest in the business. It, it's really just bridging the earnings that, that haven't happened uh, over the last year. I, I think that combination, which you know Brian alluded to, bloated balance sheets, combined with the fact that you know a number of businesses are going to have to rebuild their working capital. Uh, you know, as we kickstart growth, they'll need to rebuild working capital. So, so I think for for many company sectors, there's there's a second event potentially 
that will come through. Um, and, and so we have flattened the default curve, but we, we still expect there to be uh, a default cycle um, as a result of this. Mm, yeah. You know, uh, what? one thing that I wonder is, do you have sort of a multi-speed uh, recovery, so to speak? You know, we talked a little bit about uh, the environment in Europe, the environment in the U.S. Um, Stuart, as you think about where the opportunities may play out going forward, how are you thinking today about relative value between those two geographies? Yeah, I think it's different by sector, by company. It's incredibly difficult to predict as well uh, from a from a trajectory perspective. I mean, let, let's be honest, we're in an environment today where it's easier to forecast the 2023 budget than the 2021 budget, which is a pretty unusual place uh, to start from an investment perspective. So I, I think it's it's always good to to exercise um, a lot of caution. Middle of last year, um, our activity was pretty balanced. We were we were active in Europe, we were active in the US. Um, but I think, given what we've seen in particular in the fourth quarter and probably the start of this year, you know, the recent market moves, general spread tightening. Um, I think we've become pretty cautious on prices. Um, we still see opportunities, but they uh, they tend to be more off the run. They tend to be uh, less traded situations, more bespoke deals. So, so maybe transactions where there's there's less capital uh, competing for that opportunity. Um, the, the net of that for us has been that um, I think we see probably more value in the US today. And I think if I was to look back over over the last three months. I'd estimate that around 70% of our activity has been you know, into the US market. So I think that will change. I think, I think things will uh, even out again. But, but certainly, as you sit here today, um, we've been more focused on the US recently and, and probably in the near term too. Okay. So if the US is, is maybe a bit more plentiful in terms of opportunities right now, let's talk about where those may develop specifically. So Brian, what are your thoughts there as you look out over the next, let's say, 12 to 24 months in the U.S. market? Where do you expect some of those distressed opportunities to actually come from? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've sort of bucketed the opportunity set into uh, you know a few different categories. The first being market dislocation, which Stuart just talked about You know, uh, last year, March, April timeframe. It was a little bit of a, a fish in a barrel type of an environment where everything was had traded off to a level that seemed to be attractive. Um, you know, uh, good companies trading in the 70s uh, that that lasted only for a couple of weeks. And as he said, it's it's much more bespoke now, much more um, you know idiosyncratic, single name basis where technicals are involved. Certainly, you know, we're on our fourth vintage of of investing in the strategy and and at the end of the day um you know there's been dislocations at at times across every single vintage so we would expect more market dislocation to happen but maybe not you know at the volume that we saw last year um so there's that bucket that will always kind of be there and you'll you'll find it you know in a in a single name basis where names may get downgraded and you know there's technical pressure on the name you just need to be in a position to take advantage of that. The other bucket, you know, that we've alluded to is rescue financings. Uh, you know, whether that's large syndicated deals that you know took place last year on the cruise lines and airlines. Uh, you know, certainly those are still prevalent, but the the pricing, as Stuart talked about, has come in quite significantly. Um, but where you can find more small 
bilateral transactions, even with large companies, uh, but you can negotiate one off with those with those entities. I think there's there's an attractive place to put capital to work there. We've been very active in that space over the last you know, quarter and a half um, as the market kind of repriced itself back into to more of a tight range. Um, and then there's the default cycle that we've been talking about now for a little bit, and and that's going to take some time to work its way through the system, given stimulus and as that wears off and as companies come out and need to generate working capital liquidity to to sort of grow back into their capital structures we'll start to see you know those defaults pick up from a sector perspective you know clearly energy and retail were the first to kind of uh start to default last year as well as some heavily impacted covid industries like travel uh, all of those sectors um you know have have cleaned up most of what they need to clean up or gotten liquidity to sort of bridge them to the back half of 2021 and so we think that you know in the back half of 2021 we may see some of those repeat customers if you will into our market come back but at the end of the day all sectors have been impacted to a degree so if you already had a bloated balance sheet and you were you know in a sector that wasn't you know necessarily on the front lines of covid being impacted you were funding earnings and you now have a bloated balance sheet that doesn't give you a lot of room for error on the back end of 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 uh, COVID, and as we sort of rebound out of uh, the pandemic, so I don't think that there's a place really that that you could hide. If you had a, a strong balance sheet coming in, that's good. You can probably survive through this. But if you were already pretty levered, which a lot of the LBOs in the high yield market space were, um, there's just not a lot of room for error at, at the end of the day. Got it. So so we've got market dislocations. We've got rescue financing. We've got the kind of longer default cycle and how that plays out over time. And then some more idiosyncratic opportunities in different sectors and geographies. You mentioned energy. Energy is obviously not as uh, big of an exposure in the European markets. Stuart, you know, given the kind of multifaceted uh, opportunity set that Brian just described that he's expecting to see in the U.S., what does that look like in Europe, uh, you know, over the next 12 to 24 months? I, th- I think it looks very similar. Uh, uh, the way the way we think about the market is we, we really try and broaden out our, our funnel, our pipeline, uh, as you will. And for us, that starts with, uh, with with being able to cover a really wide range of opportunities, which we get um, through um, through the cool bearings platform. So, you know, that's a business where we have proprietary coverage of 1600 high yield issuers, 700 middle market companies. So, so, so that, that is the starting point for us is that we get to see, you know, lots and lots of different things. We don't have to focus down on, on specific sectors, industries and, and spend our time there uh, because of that. Um, as you rightly point out, we, we're not going to be investing in upstream energy. I think we're pretty cautious on, on things like traditional retail as well. But but we do see opportunities across a whole range of sectors and companies. Uh, but our starting point really comes from the fact that we cover a lot of credit as, a, as an institution. Uh, and, and a lot of Brian and I, certainly our early stage work is, is, is working out how we can best mine that coverage universe to kind of bring it down to a, a, an opportunity list uh, for, the, for the strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I'd like to get into is um, – you know, just the amount of money that's been raised in this space in recent years. So no surprise, I think, given the um, dislocation in markets, the pandemic, et cetera, that distressed debt has, you know, come, you know, pretty quickly back to the forefront over the past year or so. Um, so I'm curious, you know, if you've got money flowing into the asset class, 
And you've also at the same time got government stimulus still working its way through the system. Are you concerned at all, Stuart, about you know the actual ability to put money to work here and that there will be enough investable opportunities um, for, for all this capital that's flown into the asset class? I think the short answer is is no, but but that doesn't mean we won't be cautious at various points uh, in time. I, I think the question of whether the capital raised draws the opportunity always comes up. Um, it's important to remember, however, there's you know, th- there's more to the market than just just corporate credit. We focus on developed market corporate credit, but there's emerging market, there's NPLs, there's real estate, and so on. So there's a much broader asset class. Uh, that falls into the distressed debt space, uh, just away, away from corporates. Um, if we just take the um, the sub investing grade markets, though, I think there's no doubt that what we've seen with COVID last year is incredibly disruptive, um, and it's going to continue to impact all sorts of sectors and companies uh, for the next few years. Um, specifically for the market we look at, um, so sub investing grade corporates, it's a pretty big market. Um, around six trillion of, of debt between syndicated and private credit. So even if you don't think that defaults are going to get particularly high, um, you know, ten percent cumulative defaults over the next three years would still equate to six hundred billion um, of paper, which is a pretty sizable opportunity. Now that's before we factor in non-defaulted opportunities, discounted secondary names, rescue financing, and so on. So you know, all of that together, you know, we feel pretty confident that supply. Uh, will be there. Um, I, I think it's also relevant um, from from our perspective to, to to point out that there's an area of the market where strategies like ours can play, where the really big funds just simply can't play. So, for example, seventy percent of our deal flow is typically in transactions where the debt structure is less than one billion. I think we can extend that and say below 500 million debt structures, it's about 50% of our deal flow. So, you know, we, we can play in a space that you don't necessarily see, you know, all of that capital kind of being uh, attracted towards. And, and and that's a pretty sizable part of the market. When you're looking at companies with less than a billion of debt, it's, it's around two thirds of issuers. Um, and so there's a, a large part of that money that just simply won't be, I think, targeting the same type of uh, transactions uh, that, that we can target. So so what do the c- competitive dynamics look like in that smaller end of the market, Stuart? Is it less competitive versus the, the larger cap names? I th- I'd say it's less competitive. Um, I, I think there's probably two factors that really matter um, in that space. I mean, I think it's, I think it's taken that people will still need to understand the dynamics of a company, being able to pull apart the cash flows, work through the processes as required. But, but the ability to see uh, some of these and identify some of these smaller deals, first and foremost, a lot of these deals aren't traded. Um, they may be private deals. They may be, they may be kind of loans that just don't see on screen. So I think, I think the ability to see them um, is important. But then secondly, the, the flexibility to execute. Um, the way I look at it, you know, many of these deals, you know, you may only be able to you know, deploy anywhere, call it, call it 20, 30, 70 million of capital into those names, which for a strategy like ours can be interesting. But for a, if you're trying to deploy a three, four billion strategy, those kind of deals just, just aren't really going to be interesting because you can't, you can't get your deployment up. Um, so I think it's less competitive. I, I think it's, uh, I mean, still big businesses, so still you know, very strong companies in that space. But I think you know the, the combination of being able to identify and then execute means that you're necessarily going to have fewer players who are attracted to that to that sector. 
I mean, certainly there are managers with smaller funds uh, that are trying to attack that smaller end of the market, as Stuart said. But um, I think there are fewer that have you know large platforms that can that can try to uh, attack this space with the number of eyeballs on credit that you know a manager like ourselves or other large managers can can sort of uh, exploit, if you will. So the the fact that we have um, you know th- that 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 large of a resource to tap to be able to deploy capital at the smaller end of the market certainly makes it different than myself being in Greenwich and Stuart being in Mayfair and us having a small team and trying to attack this market on our own. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that platform, Brian, because I think, you know, Stuart's talking about, uh, you know, with the attraction of some of the smaller transactions out there in the market, uh, I would imagine that there are challenges that go along with that. Uh, you know, f- for instance, needing to screen a significant number of transactions. I assume there's less publicly available information out there on these companies, et cetera. So how do you solve for all that? Yeah, for us, I mean, it's it's the platform. We're, we're effectively, a, you know, a boutique strategy inside a, a behemoth of an asset manager that has... Um, you know, a high yield team that manages over 50 billion globally and, and monitors 1600 credits on a regular basis. We have a $15 billion direct lending platform that's growing and has, um, you know, relationships with over 700 middle market companies. We've got the structured side of the business where we can tap the resource of folks who are monitoring 3,300 CLO transactions uh, and tranches of, of, of debt and equity. Um, we, we can use the resources on the aircraft leasing side in the middle of COVID to try to understand what's going on in that space. We have the real estate platform to understand what's, what's going on from that perspective. So there's a lot for us to be able to um, use and help develop a thesis on a particular investment, but also identify investments. So to your point in terms of numbers of deals coming across our desk, I mean, in the fourth quarter, I think we screened over 300 names um, and boiled it down to, you know, less than 30 that we could really sink our teeth into and thought were interesting and and ultimately deployed capital into a much lower number and and are continuing to monitor names on a go forward basis uh, within that subset of 30. And that's, it's it's a, it's a moving target of na- new names that are coming in, names that sort of fall away from our marketplace. Uh, but in an environment like today, where markets can get very tight very quickly, ha- having that funnel that Stuart referenced earlier of you know lots of different investment professionals looking at credit, bringing us ideas and us and us approaching them as well to try to find things to dig into, I think is uh, a key advantage for us uh, to sort of deal with everything that you just talked about in your question, Greg. Um, I, I think I think that that's how we attack it. Clearly, um, we're, we're less reliant on having to use uh, trading desks as, a, as an example to come up with ideas. Um, most of the time, mm-hmm. it's the other way around, us bringing ideas to them to try to help us source paper. You know, we've been throwing around the term distressed debt quite a bit, but uh, I'm conscious that that term can mean different things to different people. Um, we've mentioned a few specific uh, types of situations, including rescue financing, but Stuart, I'm hoping you can shed a little light here on what you actually mean when you're talking about distressed debt, uh, whether it's control investments, non-control investments, et cetera. So what types of transactions are you and the team actively participating in today? There's an incredible array of uh, different markets that 
um, people look at in the distress space. For, for us specifically, um, the, the three areas you mentioned, um, we look at all of them. We, we, we're flexible about our allocations um, between those opportunities. So, you know, at, at one level, you know, digging deep into a into a credit story to unearth a you know a good secondary opportunity. So, a non-control name where we're going to clip some coupon, uh, get some get some pull to par, and and hopefully hopefully sell out or get refinanced is 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 a is a significant uh, part of what we do, um, all the way through to to control. Um, so you know, getting involved with companies, you know, helping them to kind of fix, correct their balance sheets, possibly invest some some additional capital into that space, uh, and bring about um, a platform from which those companies can kind of relaunch strategic growth plans. I mean, that's that's a really interesting place. It's where we can get outsized returns, um, for example. And, and, that, and that can be anywhere. I mean, it doesn't need to be a COVID sector. Last year, uh, you know, we, we took control of a, a leading UK healthcare business that had just had the wrong balance sheet for a number of years and, and just really needed to kind of uh, restart investment uh, with the freedom away from uh, having a large a large debt burden. And, and then lastly, kind of new, newly originated deals. So Brian, Brian talked about it, rescue financing. The ability to, to to put capital uh, into in at the top of the capital structure uh, with good returns. So you know, design design the collateral, design the controls. Um, recently, I mean, for us, that's been looking at everything from cinema operators all the way through to uh, kind of semi infrastructure type deals uh, where in Europe. So I think I think it's I think the the whole opportunity set can be broad. The key, of course, is I think just being flexible uh, in terms of how you think about execution. So don't we, we try not to kind of basket too much about where these opportunities will come, whether we're going to do more in the US, whether we'll do more in Europe, whether we're going to focus on non-control or control. I think you know it's about being flexible given the opportunity set in front of us today and just finding finding the best ideas across the space. Yeah, and Brian, given everything that Stuart just mentioned around the different types of transactions that the team is seeing today, let me ask you this. Do you actually need uh, to see a material default cycle for there to be enough opportunities uh, to put capital to work over the next kind of, you know, couple of years? For us, the answer is no. As Stuart just outlined, we're not a control-only um, strategy. We're, we're looking at that's only one part or one leg of the stool, if you will, of, of what we do. Um, so there's there's always, you know, market sell-offs, market dislocations that we can take advantage of. But I think, again, you know, not to belabor it, but having <clears throat> access to as many deals as we do as a part of a broad, you know, asset management platform allows us to find opportunities that meet our return thresholds and deploy capital in you know a methodical way in a thoughtful way and you know if there if there is a dislocation in the market you'll see us deploy more capital in a given quarter it's not linear but at the same time we're never in a hurry to uh, to deploy capital in this in this space we try to be opportunistic we're very relative value focused we can look at Europe we can look at the US you know a number of different sectors in both and and just find um, you know whether it's pulled apart trades of of a dislocation in a in a certain credit or if it's uh you know the opportunity to buy into a, an asset that we think is going to default and and ultimately take control of it through a restructuring process 
we can make money on either one of those transactions. So uh, you know, defaults aren't necessary. And in fact, you know, our strategy has been, um, uh, you know, was launched in 2012. And, you know, you could argue that defaults have been low really since then. Um, so we, we've, we've successfully deployed capital and, and gotten, you know, uh, strong returns in low default environments in the past. You know, Brian, one thing that we haven't touched on yet that I want to talk about is, you know, what where you're seeing interest in the asset class today, uh, what investors are thinking about it. I know you and Stuart and the team are always having conversations with LPs uh, ranging from pension funds to insurance companies and, and all types of investors. So what are you hearing from them today? Yeah, I think whereas early in the the, the COVID cycle, if you will, the, the investors were were assessing their existing exposure and 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 trying to figure out how to navigate, you know, an environment where um, no more face to face meetings. Everybody is trying to figure out what you know video platform they're going to use to have conversations with um, LPs and investors alike, and and um, you know, figuring out how to do diligence managers from you know your spare bedroom. All of that sort of took uh, you know a few months to kind of play out, and um, it was a lot easier for LPs to just sort of re-up with existing managers uh, in the distress space generally. And so I think we we saw that happen early on with ourselves and with other managers. And um, you know, really in the back half of last year and the beginning of 2021, there's been more of an openness to you know embracing this environment doing you know due diligence in a in a in a manner that people are now comfortable with to find complementary solutions to who their existing managers are um you know one of the issues that that we saw sort of pre-covid was a lot of lps that invest with us had concerns that they sort of had beta risk across uh the their, the distress space because a lot of folks were chasing large deals and investing in the same names. So looking across portfolios to see what's differentiated from some of the other managers that they're invested in and, and finding, uh, as I said, complementary managers uh, to still take advantage of, of what what is offered in the in the distressed or special situations universe today, um, but not necessarily doubling down on what they've already invested in, if that makes sense. Uh, so that's that's where the bulk of the conversation has sort of evolved over time. And I think that um, all the questions that you've been asking on this podcast are, are questions that we're receiving from them. Is the opportunity set really there? How can you deploy um, you know, capital in a low default environment if, if ultimately none of these companies default? You know, what, what, what exactly is distressed debt in your strategy and how, how does it sort of overlay with what the market opportunity set is today? So uh, you know, I think this is a great example of, of, of questions that we're, we're getting from LPs directly. Doing a due diligence from your spare bedroom is a uh, term or a phrase that I don't think we could have imagined that we'd be uh, hearing or talking about uh, before this pandemic, but that's kind of where we are today. But it's really interesting to hear how how business is still happening um, and, and how activity levels are, are still high and transactions are getting done, um, even in this virtual world. Um, and speaking of this virtual world, as we finish this virtually recorded uh, podcast, um, I wanted to just ask the two of you uh, to, you know, put yourself in an investor's shoes, a limited partner's uh, shoes, and think about the years ahead and think about, you know, whether you have an allocation to distressed debt or you're thinking about one. Are there any parting words you would leave people with? Um, Stuart, I'd like to start with you. I think 
I would uh, I would advise people to to firstly understand the target market um, of the strategies that they're looking to invest with. So, is it a market that they're comfortable with? Do the return expectations um, stack up? Um, do they understand the risks and are they comfortable with those risks? Because they will be different across uh, the various uh, distressed areas. I, I think I would, you know, focus on the team. And you know, is it a team that, that that that's been together a long time? Is it a team that's been doing again what the strategy is set up to do uh, for a long period of time? And and then also understand how active that that team's going to be. I, I think there's a big difference between. You know, passive investment in in distressed and active investment today, and and today I think more than ever, teams that are very active and can control situations and can drive situations and can bring solutions, um, I think they're going to be much more uh, successful um, than, than than teams that aren't. So, so th- those would probably be my takeaways, Greg. Um, I'm sure Brian will uh, have some too. Brian, yeah, I think it's um, I think Stuart nailed it. I mean, understanding how managers are going to source their deal flow is is going to be uh incredibly important and having um you know the ability to look through multiple windows of of market opportunity sets the days of you know buying everything that that trades to 60 or 70 cents on the dollar those those days have kind of gone by the wayside there's just too much capital waiting on the sidelines to take advantage of that and so we we saw last year only a couple weeks where you could take advantage of that type of dislocation so the ability to really you know have a differentiated way of sourcing uh deal flow is is going to be key you know not just right now and where we we are but i think going forward um given everything that everyone's learned both through the global financial crisis and now, you know, through the pandemic. Um, and I think, you know, uh, having the resources, not just from an investment standpoint, from, but from a legal standpoint are really key as well. We, we are blessed to have, you know, dedicated legal resources that can help us navigate, uh, you know, how to deploy capital in a way that minimizes litigation risk, but takes advantage of what, you know, the, the today's documentation, you know, provides to, uh, investors like ourselves. And, you know, that's a skill set that I think not everyone has. Um, and, and it's something that, uh, at the end of the day makes, um, us a better manager for having those resources internally. The team, the platform, the flexibility. Uh, I think those are some of the key messages I hear coming from you both. So, um, listen, it's been really eye-opening for me, uh, anyhow, to to hear this update on uh, how you and the team are approaching investing in distressed debt, uh, you know, throughout this pandemic and, and going forward. So I've learned a lot. I appreciate both your time. I hope we don't have to wait a whole year again to get you back on the podcast because uh, there's so much to talk about. But uh, Brian and Stuart, thank you so much for for joining me today and uh, we'll look forward to speaking soon. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to episode number three of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.